We're going to be looking forward to the coming of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming. And who better to look at and read and study than those who prophesied his coming and who look forward to it perhaps most in the Old Testament. That is the prophets of our king. That perhaps more than anybody else who wrote about Jesus and his coming, about the coming and the need for a Messiah who would come and set us free, who spoke most eloquently and most beautifully was the prophets of the back half of the Old Testament. And so we'll hear from Micah and Amos and Isaiah over the course of the next couple of weeks. But this morning, we start with Hosea. Hosea. In order to cover essentially large chunks of Scripture, I'm going to read just a few sections from the first three chapters. We're going to be dealing with all three of the first three chapters of Hosea, at least in part of those, each of those chapters. I'm going to read through a section of chapter 1 and then through all of chapter 3 this morning. Hear God's words. And the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel and to forgive them all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord your God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And skip over to chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley, and I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, for you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, many of you may not be very familiar with the Minor Prophets, and so it's important for us to give you some historical context and an introduction to the book of Hosea before we dive into some of the details. The kings there listed in chapter 1, verse 1, are the kings of the latter part of the 8th century uh, BC. They're they're prominent. There may be names if you read your First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles 
uh, much. You might recognize some of the names. But they also have uh, peers who are great prophets as well, prophets whose names you know. Jonah, yeah, that guy, him and the whale. Amos, Hosea, you know, they are all prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is split in two portions. One is known as Israel in the north part, and Judah is the kingdom on the south. And then we have Micah and Isaiah are prophesying in the south during the same period of time. Now, there, at this point in Israel's history, you may remember the historical context of who Israel is. They are God's people, God's covenant people, that he called them out of Egypt. He said that you are my people. He led them into the promised land. And yet, after he had given them his law, he had promised his fidelity to them, has care for them, and made covenant with them, how had they lived? Very unfaithfully. And time and time again, he had called them back to repentance at various times, he had actually let other nations come in and discipline them uh, by exploiting them, by leading them off in slavery and taking their goods and resources. But God would consistently come back and be kind and gracious and restore them. At this particular point in the history of Israel, they are in a season of relative wealth and peace. But it is a, as is often the case for when God's people get wealth and quote-unquote peace and that they're not being destroyed by other nations, is it became a time and a season of great idolatry and decadence. Despite God having given them his love and his guidance and protection, the people of Israel have once again become like everyone else, that they are like the Moabites and the Syrians, and that is no good. If you know anything about the Moabites and the Syrians, they go down in history of some of the most cruel, disgusting, and awful people in the world. They would worship Baal, the fertility temples, in which they would actually involve copulating as an act of worship. Now, I understand the attraction of that for some people, if you don't care about God's morals, but God has actually set aside his people to be sexually pure, to be sexually different than the nations around them. And yet, they are, while they are worshiping Yahweh, the true God, in his temple, then they would go to Baal's temple and do this as well. But it didn't end there. They would also sacrifice their children to the god Molech, they would give their grown virginal daughters instead of to marriage, but they would sacrifice them before the gods. In fact, you can actually go to sites in Israel where you can, there are mountains, hills of burned bones of the children that they sacrificed. So let me describe Israel at this time. They are rich, materialistic, idolatrous, baby-killing, sex-loving, religious in the fact that they serve God in their temple and then go live however they want on the side. Does this remind you of anybody? We are rich, materialistic, consumeristic, idolatrous, politician-trusting church. Remember that this, he is talking to the people of God, not to the culture around him. It's the people of God. We are a people caught up in the trappings of religious consumerism, a facade of religious, religiosity, barely covering over a dead spiritual life. Those are difficult words. Prophets don't usually mince words. We are a church that has lost its love for God. I'm not talking about King's Chapel necessarily. Perhaps the church in America. I'll be, I can be more gentle though. We try to bring this down to your individual level. 
To put it more personally, what I'd like to call us to and challenge us with is this question this morning for you to reflect on. Has your heart grown cold to the Lord? The people of Israel have grown cold to God. Yes, they go to the temple and they worship, but they have grown cold to God because they have turned to other gods. They have trusted in their riches. They've trusted in their peace, their lack of wars. They have turned themselves over to other things, and so their heart towards God has grown cold. They have grown frozen and hard. And indeed, I would, I would, as we're looking forward, this is an Advent series. This is a tough start to an Advent series, isn't it? But there is something about this season, and I think it is reflected so beautifully in that confession, that call, that prayer we did that was so lengthy earlier, but we simply laid out all the ways in which we are losing peace. Why are we losing peace? Because we care about so many other things besides the coming of Jesus, but the love that he has given us and the affection. And so we care about all the details of all the stuff of this month. And so I was actually sitting with somebody with this week who, in God's goodness, experienced some brokenness that has made Advent alive, but he compared it to last Advent, where life was over, overwhelming in such a way that Advent kind of got to the end of the season and felt like it was just kind of blah. A heart of cold that was cold, that was not warm, that was actually felt hardened to the things of the Lord's. Is that where your heart is? We look at the Advent and its twinkling lights and its worn candles and its pretty settings and we go, my heart should feel more affection than it does. Why does it feel so cold? Well, this morning, I want to, I don't know the difference between preaching and meditations. This morning, I don't want to go verse by verse, but want to kind of provide simply three meditations from the three chapters of Hosea. And like the prophet, who feels rather desperate in this moment, who through this narrative, and it is a beautiful narrative, a beautiful story, that your heart might be wooed to feel a warmth and affection for the Lord and make you go, Lord, Oh, groom, perfect groom, come, Lord Jesus. My heart needs this. So here's your first affection, your first meditation comes from chapter one. Let's dive in. Let's get into the details a little bit. The book of Hosea is named as such because the prophet, the prophet who wrote it. His name is Hosea. It's the same root for it for Joshua and Yeshua, which actually is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And it means God saves. Hosea is entering the scene and is prophesying and ringing the warning bell in these days of Israel. And indeed, the world of the Israelites was crumbling. And within one generation, Israel would essentially be gone via the destruction of the Assyrians. Hosea is a prophet. Do you know what prophets do? Prophets were God's attorneys who would read the law of God back to the people and tell them who they are and how they were supposed to live. But Israel, in losing their love for God and growing hard and cold to God and running after and worshiping idols have violated their covenant with God. And so the job of Hosea and the other prophets was to show up before the people of God and say, hey, here's the covenant. You're not living that way anymore. Now, most prophets would simply go out, show up, and preach, right? And usually it was a lot of doom and gloom in the temple foyers and the city squares, But this is a desperate time for the people of Israel. 
This is a God's last gasp warnings to them. And so he gives them not simply just somebody who will preach, but he gives them a visible parable. And unfortunately, Hosea has to live it out. And so God says to Hosea, Hosea, you're my attorney, but you need to go tell my people something, but you're going to do it through an illustration, and the illustration is going to be a parable of your life. And so he says this, verse 2, Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. Being a prophet is tough business. The parable in which Hosea is to enact is, the, is, a, is to enact a metaphor that is often used in scriptures. It is to be the metaphor, a descriptive parable of God's relationship between himself and his people, and it's a relationship using the metaphor of marriage. The Bible uses metaphors to capture the nature of our relationship with God, right? We're called his bond slave, his servants. God is the master, and we are his servants. God is king, and we are his subjects and his citizens. God is a shepherd, and we are his sheep. Perhaps the one that we use more than any other in this church is God as a father, and we are his children. But the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, what they most love to use, the metaphor they most often used, is that God is the good groom, and we are the bride. Isaiah 54, to give you some examples, says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And he repeats it again in Isaiah 62. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God says that I am your groom. We are to be married. That says something about our relationship with God. It captures something about the intimacy that we are to have in our relationship with God. That like a marriage, this this relationship is more important than any other relationships. It's more important than the the parent-child relationship. More important than the king-citizen relationship. It captures the beauty of the intimacy that God wants for his people, but also the priority that he wants this relationship to have with his people. And so Hosea says, yes, I'll carry out the task. And so, so he does. He went, it says in verse 3, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame. Now, I want you to pause here with me for a moment. And as readers and listeners understand something, this is Hosea's real life. We often forget that Hosea was an actual real man. We tend to begin, we tend to sometimes think of the prophets as simply God's robots who are doing God's bidding in the world. Go say this. Okay, I'll go say that. Go do this. Okay, I'll do that. But understand, this is his real life with real feelings and real emotions and indeed real choices. And in the details of the story, there is sound something that we hopefully would press this in. You know that God does not tell Hosea whom to marry. He just says, go find a whore. It's still Hosea's God, still Hosea's God to choose her. In other words, when Hosea goes out to do God's bidding, he is still looking for one to whom he will place his affection. Hosea must still choose the place to where he is love and affection, and so he chooses Gomer. He seeks her out. 
He chooses her. He places his affection upon her. He betroths her. He marries her. She is his choice. Maybe not a good one, but she is his choice. And that reflects something about this metaphor that we're in a relation, marital relationship with God. God didn't have to choose you. And part of the reason why we grow cold is that we have lost the beauty of the fact that where we were when God found us. He didn't have to seek you out. He didn't have to pursue you. He didn't have to choose you. There's another place, and it's unbelievably graphic, in Ezekiel chapter 16. In which, in fact, it, would, it makes us unbelievably uncomfortable if we were to read it. In which God talks about his marital relationship, but he says that the one to whom he marries is actually when he first comes, stumbles across his bride, she is merely a baby, still in the, the birth fluid all over her body, and she has been cast aside on the side of the road. And nobody has any compassion and no pity on her. And yet God says, I place my pity and my affection upon you. And so let me ask you this. These are meditations. I'm not trying to preach too much this morning. I'm asking you questions. What would it take for your heart of stone to break this Advent? What would dissolve frozen hearts? Perhaps it would be once again reflecting on the fact that God sought you out when you were lost, when you were squirming in your own sin, when you were running from him as fast as possible. Are you cold? Remember where you were when he found you, that he set his affection upon you. Abraham was an idol worshiper. Paul was on his way to kill Christians. Peter was failing at fishing. And God called them out. And he sets his love and affection upon them. And he promises himself to you. He chose you. And he was with real love. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. And so Hosea chose for himself a wife. A wife of whoredom. Was that you? Hosea already knew her wanton ways. I mean, this is a difficult call on Hosea's life, isn't it? But the pain of this relationship hasn't actually come to bear yet for Hosea, has it? You see, surely Hosea thought, well, God's calling me to go take a wife of whoredom so that I can redeem her, right? So that I can save her. God has called me to love this woman, to redeem her, to reform her, to make something beautiful of her life. This is missionary dating. Isn't that great? He's looking at it and going, this is an ancient Near Eastern version of Pretty Woman. Perhaps that's his hopes. But if we're going to understand this, we have to understand and put ourselves in the place of Hosea and how he understands the pain that he would then go, and the disappointment that he would then go through. Because the story in chapter 2 continues on, or actually in the rest of chapter 1. But not, not, not so much sooner had they gotten married that this marriage goes terribly, painfully wrong and probably fairly rapidly. Gomer begins to have children. First, she had a son, and they called his name Jezreel. And God says, call him Jezreel. Now, calling your kid Jezreel 
That actually sounds like a pretty good name. And in fact, the city of Jezreel had had a great legacy in the history of Israel. It's the place where Gideon had a great defeat in the book of Judges. A great battle that he won was victorious. But the word actually means cast off. And the reason why he's mentioning and why he wants to call him Jezreel is because uh, some decades before, the king, one who had become the king of Israel, a guy named Jehu, had slaughtered all the household of the king of Israel. And he was a man of arrogance and pride. And so, and the people of Israel had not held him accountable. This is who their king was. This is a massacre of epic proportion that Jehu participates in. And there was no accountability and there was no judgment against him. And God says, Israel, I'm going to come and hold you. I'm going to cast you aside for this terrible event. It would be simply like mentioning a terrible slaughter in the history of America and naming your kid after that slaughter. That's the first kid. It gets worse. The second child, and she says she conceived the daughter. The Hebrew name was Lo-Ruhama, and it means no mercy. And then it gets even more worse. Third child, and lastly another one, a son, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, and I will not be your gods. Hosea would go places with this little kid, and he would call for him in the temple courts, and he would say, hey, no, no mercy, come here. Hey, not mine, let's go home. Hey, kid who I don't like, step in line. You ever wonder why the Bible has such terrible names for these poor kids? Once again, you have to step inside of Hosea's. This is actually the names. Now, why would Hosea name his kids these things? Well, Jezreel is because God told him. The other two, perhaps Hosea noticed that while Jezreel was supposed to be his son, and he saw some resemblance, his, his daughter and his second son had no resemblance to him. There's something, again, in the issues and the details. With Jezreel, it says that she bore him a son. For the daughter and the second son, there is no him. It does not refer to Hosea. In other words, it is known. She is a woman who is loose. She is running around with other men. And so these are children who are not Hosea's children. They are Gomer's, but they are not his. So remember, God said to Hosea, you shall not just have a wife of whoredom, but you'll have children who are the produce of whoredom. People probably stopped him in the street. Why would you name your daughter No Mercy? Why would you name your daughter No Mercy? Because he would then say, because the Lord will show no mercy to the people of Israel who have whored themselves with other nations and other gods. And why would you name your kid Not My People? Because God's saying, you people are not going to be my people any longer. And do you think they were convicted by this? No. They would look at Hosea and go, you're the idiot whose wife is running around on him, and everybody knows it. Who are you to come tell us what to do? Who are you to judge us? You don't even know who your kid's daddy is. Can you imagine how Hosea felt? The humiliation for him? But I want you to see in this God's incredible love in the second half of chapter 1 and of chapter 2, See, we see at the end of chapter 1 that Hosea decides to love these kids, to treat them as his own. He promises a love and affection for them. Even though they are not his own, he will call them his own. Even though they don't deserve mercy, he will give them mercy. But things don't get any better, though, in his relationship with Gomer. If you look on into chapter 2, it's a poem of sorts in which Hosea will describe his relationship with Gomer. 
And he says this in verse 5. He says, for your mother has played the whore. She has conceived them. She who has conceived you has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, those who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And so she has been a whore, and she is now being an adulteress, even after he takes on her children as his own. In the church, we like to say our infidelity is sin. It's sin, but that is not personal enough. You understand what sin is? It is adultery. It is unfaithfulness to your God. And this is why the marriage metaphor is so important in the Bible. If we were to go to all the other metaphors, right? If you drive too fast on the king's road, you get a ticket. That's not that personal. If your sheep wanders off from the shepherd, the shepherd doesn't take it personally. Sheep are stupid. If your parents of a teenage child feels their kids are pushing them away, you go, well, that's what teenagers do. Should the parents be offended? No. But if a spouse finds their wife in bed with another man, that's intensely personal. You see, sin is the deepest betrayal. It is the betrayal of the one who loves and provides for us. It is the betrayal of our spouse, and that is what God is saying to Israel. That your worshiping of other Baals and serving other gods, it is not mere sin. It is betraying your very relationship with me. And do you see the ridiculousness of our unfaithfulness? What is she longing for from these, lo- from these lovers? I'll go after my lovers. Why? Because they give me bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink. In chapter 3, verse 2, it's even more ridiculous. It says that she goes after other lovers because they give her cakes of raisins, dried grapes. And you know what? We, we will cheat on our spouse, our Lord. Some, you might say, you know, there was, a, there was a poll many years ago about what would it take? How much would you, how much would you get? Have to, have to be paid in order to cheat on your spouse. A million dollars, five million dollars. What if we could guarantee a, a successful life for your kids? You might do it then. But do you see what it says? Gomer is unfaithful for simply the reward of a cake of raisins. What is God saying? That we would cheat on God for less that we would lift our cat calls for mere skirts from the world. We will go whoring for football and for shopping. And what are your mistresses? Anything we turn to for joy and satisfaction that is not rooted in the ultimate provision of Christ Jesus. I know these words are difficult, but God says that my people are drilling wells that produce no water. They're giving themselves over to the things of this world. So we go whoring after the success of our children because we idolize them. Or we put off sacrificing our life for kids because, well, we like money and our comfort more. We date who we want to date because, well, my sense of security and significance from the voice of this person is more important to me than the voice of God's. If I could just have that house, or if my life could just look like that, or if I could just be doing that kind of work, or if I was just like that kind of person, if I could just travel that much. Cakes of raisins. Cakes of raisins. Hosea learns that Gomer falls into the hands of a man who couldn't provide the basic necessities of her life. In chapter 2, it says that 
She, she's running after these men for, so they can provide her bread and wool and flax and all these things. But yet there's a man, it says in verse 8, actually it's this astounding thing. It says that she runs after these other men, but then it says this, and this is unbelievable. She says, but she does not know that I am the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. You understand what's going on here? Haddon Robinson describes this imagery this way from chapter 2. Let me give it to you as a dialogue. Hosea knocks on the door of the house in which Gomer is living. A man answers, are you the man living with Gomer, daughter of Deblaine? Man, what if I am? What is it to you? Hosea, well, I'm her husband. The man clenches his fist, getting ready for a fight. Hosea says, no, no, I'm not here to fight you. Will you take this silver and this gold this food and these provisions, and will you buy her the necessities that she needs? Man, he must have thought, what a fool. Sure, I'll take your money. Sure, I'll tell her it's from you. And so the lover comes home with these goods, and he lavishes Gomer with good gifts and good provisions, and she must have gratified him for it. Isn't this what Romans says that we are? Romans 1 and 2 says that we are a people who have taken God's creation and have served the creation instead of the creator. And yet God, in the midst of our idolatry and running from him, he comes and says, I will provide for you anyways. When you're in the bed of your lover, I will bring you the bread that you need. You ever thought about the prodigal father? That he just gave his son the provisions knowing he would run off. Who loves like this? Who pursues like this? Who is this gracious? What, is, what does Hosea want as a husband? He wants what any want, husband wants, right? He wants his wife to be the center. He wants what his wife at the center of what his wife wants. He wants to be at the center of her affections, to, to set her love upon him. He wants her to know that he is the one who will provide for her and care for her. He wants her to know that he delights in her, and he wants her to delight in him. He wanted her to know that so much that even when she was running off into the arms of another lover, that she would run after her and provide her the provisions that she needs. Who loves like this? This is our God, right? The God who makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Who makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. And what does our God long from you? He wants to be the center of your heart. Like continue to provide for even idolatrous children. He wants to be at the center of your affections to be set upon him above all things. He wants you to rest in his arms. He wants your best. And he wants it so much that he will, do nothing, he will stop at nothing to show you. Even if it means humiliating himself by knocking on the door of whatever idolatrous brothel you happen to be living in. So I ask you, what would it take this Advent for your heart of stone to be broken? What love would you have to run into for your frozen heart to be warmed? Would our frozen hearts melt at the sight of the generous pursuit of our God in the face of infidelity? Who even when we have been idolatrous and adulterous and unfaithful to him would run after us and say, I will provide for you. You see, Imagine in our church, 
that someone here cheated on their spouse and you found out, what would you think about that person? Well, that's easy to sit in judgment of someone like Gomer, isn't it? Don't you understand we are so much like her? That's what the text is saying. That we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow and then fail to give thanks to the true lover of our souls and use his blessings and his provisions to simply capitalize even greater idolatry and yet your God is faithful to you. Who loves like this? The relationship continues and it becomes even more undone. Now remember, this is a picture of God's relationship to Israel. And now, that, now what would be your prediction of what God would do to, to someone who's been this patient and this kind and this gracious and time and time after again, he's gone after his whoring, adulterous wife and provided for. You think he would be harsh and resentful and wrathful eventually. I mean, what would God do for a, to a wife like this? The last verse of Hosea chapter 2, despite all the wickedness and the infidelity, he says this, that she, I will not call her Jezreel anymore because I will plant her myself. I will not call her the children of her, Lo Ruhama, but I will say to her, though you who are not my people are now my people. In other words, he prophesies that I'm going to give even more love, and that's what brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 has been described by many commentators as the greatest Example and display of the love of God in all of Scripture. It says this And the Lord said to me, Go again. Go again, Hosea. Go again, love a woman. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And then it says this in verse 2, so I bought her. Go again. God did not give up on Israel even when Israel failed him time and time and time again. This is how God continues to feel about you. See, some of you are in a place today where you feel like running from God because you have fallen in the same addictive sin time and time and time again. And yet, do you hear the voice of the one who loves you. Go again. When you fall back into sin, God says to the son, go again. When you forget him, God says, go again. Go again, go again, go again. I love the Jesus story of the Bible and its description of love and the covenantal hesed love of God, the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So he goes again. But where does he find Gomer? Gomer is in even worse straits. She's gone from a whore to an adulterous wife, and now she's a sex slave. Gomer is now enslaved. We don't know exactly how she came to the state, if she became indebted to some man, or perhaps she went back to prostitution, and she is now being sold by what is a tantamount to her pimp. But she is enslaved. And so for Hosea to have to get her back, To go again to make her his wife, what we have to do, he will have to pay a cost and pay a price. He will have to ransom her. And so for Hosea to have her back, he has to go to the slave auction. Historians tell us of slave auctions of that day, and this is actually the case for many of the slave auctions throughout history, that the women that were put on the auction block 
were publicly paraded, stripped naked. So that all their shame could be shown, but also so that their wares might be known. Why? Well, you know why. What is a female slave to be used for? And so Gomer is there in front of a heckling crowd, stripped naked, and the bidding begins. Eight shekels, 10 shekels, 12 shekels. Then the voice of her husband rises above the rest. Hosea stood up and he says, 15 shekels. But then another says, 15 shekels and a bushel of barley. And Hosea extends to the farthest he can go and he says, 15 shekels and a bushel and a half. And a gaffle drops, sold. Her husband has bought her back. Our, story of, our study of Hosea's story has already shown that it is to be a pageant of the love of God for Israel. That's who this God is. But where, when we ask, where in the whole of human history is that love most clearly seen? Where does God pay a price like Hosea pays a price? Where does God come into the marketplace in the slave auction? And where does God pay the price to get his bride back? And here we have to understand, we finally hit the incarnation, right? What is the incarnation? It is God entering the market. It is God leaving heaven. In fact, Jesus says that he comes and identifies himself as the groom. In Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees ask Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? And Jesus says, it's because you don't fast when the groom is at the wedding. It's party time, people. In other words, what is he saying? I am the groom. And then what is Jesus' first miracle? His first miracle is performed at a wedding. And what does Jesus bring as a gift to this wedding? He brings the wine. Whose job was it to provide a wedding in the ancient, the wine at the wedding of an, in the ancient Near East? It was the groom's job. What is Jesus saying? I am the true groom. I am the real groom here. You see, just as Hosea pays a price to ransom his wife, Jesus is the husband who pays the price to ransom his adulterous church back to himself. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. He is a groom on a cross. That's who Jesus is. Who pays the price to ransom back his wife. They hung him on a tree. How? Naked and exposed. Why? So that he might bring us home and might cover us with what? Hosea covers Gomer with a robe, and so Jesus covers with the robe of righteousness. It covers over our shame and our sin so that whores may wear wedding dresses in the family of God. That's who you are. And that's why you dress up on Sunday. Not to look good for the people of God. Because God says you are my bride and you are beautiful. You see, the love of God is for, don't get mad, it's for whores. The generous, generous pursuit of God is for an unfaithful spouse and the ransom of God is for an enslaved bride. Jesus took the vows over us from all of eternity. I, Jesus, take thee sinner to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, for this life 
and for eternity, no matter the cost. Now, for some of you, your response in your heart of hearts is to go, you're right, he does love me. I should do better. That's not the right response. The right response is, God, break my heart. Melt my heart of stone and dissolve my frozen heart by your love. Is your heart unchanged? It is broken when you finally realize that you are breaking the heart of the one who loves you. You know, my own testimony is this. The time I was a little kid, I knew the name of God, and I was a good kid. I'm better than most of your kids. <laughs> but I ran into some things when I was 12, 13, 14. I did my devotions every day, and I'd, every day I'd wake come out of my devotions and think, I gotta do better. I gotta do better. I mean, this God is big. And then I went on my first missions trip. And the missions trip was, it was a missions trip. You know, like, I built stuff and moved dirt from here to there. But every night, my youth pastor, he did a devotional on the book of Hosea. And what led my heart to be melted and the grace of God hit me more than any other time in my life was when I stopped saying, I got to do better. And I started saying, Who, what God is this? That he would love me like this. You know why the blood and water flowed from Jesus' side? There's a biological reason for it. Because his heart burst. And sin and idolatry and your love for the things of the world will never become the thing that's cold to you and your heart will never be warmed until you see that your sin breaks the very heart of God. He is not just any God, but he is a faithful lover who gives good gifts to you over and over and over again. And until you understand that sin is breaking the heart of God, until you know that and own that, and you are broken and melted by his love for you, that his, his, that his kindness is what leads you to repentance, until you know that, all these things will be mere words. And the Advent season will be cold in the midst of fires of candles and hearths. Because you will not, you'll never know how much God has forgiven you. And you will not experience deep down the love of God for you. Your cross will be small. We are a small God died for your small sins. You'll never have a great love until you know that God died for a whore. You. You say, yes, yes, I, I felt like that. But I don't, I don't feel, I want to feel it. I want to feel it. It's a good place to be. According to Hosea, your heart is cold. For those of you that embrace this and experienced this in the past, but you, you don't feel this warmth now and experience the love of God in this way. Hosea says it's not that God has wandered away. It's that something in you has wandered away. Haddon Robinson tells the story of a young businessman from Chicago who went to Kentucky, and he, he met and wooed there and won a young woman and after living there for a couple years, they went back to home to Chicago and they enjoyed three relatively blissful years of marriage. Within one weekend, his young wife fell mysteriously ill and she went into a seizure of pain and lost her mind. 
At best, she was a bit demented, and at her worst, she would scream violently for hours, so loudly that the neighbors complained, and so the family, the husband, moved his wife to the suburbs where the husband hoped to nurse his wife back to health. A physician advised that they move back to her old Kentucky home in the hopes that something there in the old familiar setting might restore her sanity. And so they returned to the old homestead and they walked hand in hand through the old house, memories hanging like cobwebs in every corner. They walked through the garden to the river where the first cowslips and the violets were in bloom, but nothing happened. Only that old, wild look from her eyes still there. Days later, defeated and disappointed, he put his wife in the car and headed back to Chicago. And as they got close to him, he noticed that she fell into a deep sleep and recollected that it was the first peaceful sleep that he had seen her have in a long time. And so when they got to the house, he didn't wake her. He simply lifted her from the car and brought her inside and placed her on the bed, and she continued to sleep. He decided to sit, on, sit beside her on the bed, and he sat with her all through the darkness of the night, all the way to the first rays of the sun, reached to the windows and hit her face and awoke her. And when the young woman awoke, she saw her husband by her side, and she said, I seem to have been on a long journey. Where have you been? And the young man, speaking from days and months of years of waiting and sitting by her side, simply says this, Oh, my sweetheart, my love has been here right beside you all this time waiting. It's you who's been gone. Where is God? In the Christmas story, we find out he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's waiting for you to wake up to the depths of his love. Would you plead for him to melt your heart of stone? It's a beautiful old hymn. I should get points for this, right? Three points in a poem. We're going to use it as a prayer to close our time. It's an old hymn called, Lord, Dissolve My Frozen Heart. And here's how it goes. Lord, dissolve my frozen heart by the beams of love divine. This alone can warmth impart to dissolve a heart like mine. Oh, that love, how vast it is. Vast it seems, though known only in part. Strange indeed if love like this should not melt the frozen heart. But the love of Christ passes knowledge. The love of Christ eases fear. The love of Christ hits a man's heart and it pierces him like a spear. And so we pray, Savior, let thy love be felt. Let its power be felt by me. And then my frozen heart shall melt. Melt in love, O Lord, to thee. That's what I hope you experience this month. Guys, you can come worship.